Howdy, podcast listeners. This is David Dalt. I just wanted to say a couple words before we started the show this week. So if you're a longtime listener, you've been aware that we've recently switched to a new platform for distribution, uh, PRX, the Public Radio Exchange. And for a long time, I was saying that we didn't know what that meant, but that we'd tell you as soon as we know. Well, we've figured it out. We, for a long time, were podcasting, and so we had a variable length to the show. But now we're on a, uh, a terrestrial broadcast clock once again, just like when we were starting out at KWAM. So we're now uh, broadcasting a 59-minute show, which means that uh, in 2015, NPR stations can start to pick up our feed and hopefully program us on the radio. So if you're living in a place that has an NPR station and you like our show, you can call that NPR station and say, I know this great show, Things Not Seen, and it would fit great in this hour of your programming day. And you, Mr. or Mrs. Programming Director at the NPR station, can get the show through PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, the easiest platform to program public radio that there is. That would help us out a lot. Just uh, keep us in your thoughts. That's what's happening. And as always, thank you for listening. And with that, let's start the show. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we explore the trials and rewards of having two religions under one roof as we speak to Susan Katzmiller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Later on the broadcast, Natasha Alford takes us behind the scenes with the Salvation Army as we explore the season of The Bell Ringers. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is Susan Katz-Miller. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Miller began her career as a journalist at Newsweek, working out of their New York, Los Angeles, and Washington bureaus. From there, she moved to Senegal, where she wrote for the New York Times and the Christian Science Monitor. She's worked as the U.S. correspondent for the British weekly magazine New Scientist and spent three years freelancing from northeastern Brazil. After her two children were born, she and her husband settled in the Washington, D.C. area, and she founded a blog devoted to interfaith family communities and interfaith identity called OnBeingBoth.com, and she began blogging at Huffington Post Religion. Susan Katzmiller, welcome to Things Not Seen. Thank you. I'm so glad to be here. So I've asked you to start out by reading a, a portion from the beginning of your book on being both. Sure. Each year... My extended clan gathers for a huge Passover Seder in Florida. My 88-year-old father presides over the ritual meal, leading us through the prayers and songs of religious freedom. The family at the table includes believers, seekers, and secularists, Jews, Catholics, Protestants, Buddhists, and those who claim interfaith identity. A Jewish nephew who is about to become a bar mitzvah and a Catholic nephew who just received First Communion compete with my interfaith son to find the traditional hidden matzah. We are a joyous, motley crew intent on celebrating together. In 21st century America, we live in a kaleidoscope of religious identities, complex, swirling patterns of faith, spirituality, heritage, and practice. Many of us attend more than one place of worship. We change our religions more than once in a lifetime. We may believe in God or not, but still seek spiritual experience inside and outside of churches, synagogues, mosques, and temples. And we are marrying across traditional lines of race, ethnicity, gender, and religion. And that's our guest, Susan Katz-Miller, reading from her book, Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So your book on being both is about the experience of intentionally interfaith families. 
Now, in my understanding, you both grew up in and are presently in interfaith family situations. Could you tell us a bit about your background and your experiences with that? Sure. Well, we have to go back a generation to the night when my parents met in 1953. They were arguing over the last taxi cab on a rainy night at Logan Airport in Boston, and they ended up getting in together. And by the time the woman who would become my mother got out of the cab, the man who would become my father had obtained her phone number. Seven years went by before they got married because they really struggled with the idea of can you have an interfaith marriage? What does that look like? It wasn't common in the 1950s. But finally, they took that leap, and they did what most families did at that time and what a lot of families still do today, which is that they chose one religion in which to raise their children. So my mother put aside her Episcopalian practice and became the mother of a Jewish family. And she shepherded all four of her children through bar and bat mitzvahs. And we grew up and went out into the world. And I have a brother who married a Catholic and is raising Catholic children. I have a sister who married a conservative Jew and raised her children Jewish. And I married an Episcopalian, but we made this decision to raise our children with both of our family traditions. So if I'm hearing you correctly, your parents' family experience was they came from two different religious traditions, and when they married, they made the decision to consolidate into one religious tradition. And the children of that union have made various choices, some going to Christianity, some going to Judaism, and you in particular choosing to raise your children in two uh, parallel traditions. Have I heard that correctly so far? That's correct. Now, before before we, we delve into that, because I'm, I really want to talk about that, did your mother ever speak to you about what it was like to leave Episcopalianism and enter Judaism? I think part of the idea of raising children in one religion when they come from an interfaith family is that you present this united front. And so she really did her best. She went and she studied Hebrew with our rabbi. She learned how to make matzah balls. And in my conscious memory, she didn't go to church. She really put all of that aside. She did it the way people were telling her to do it, what, what the clergy were telling her, what the religious institutions were telling her. And I think that that had benefits in terms of I have a very deep Jewish identity. And so it worked in that sense. Um, but there were also drawbacks. I mean, in adulthood, I learned that she had actually, before meeting my father, applied to an Episcopal seminary. And so I had this realization that religion had been important to her, that she hadn't just put it aside because she didn't really care. And so I find that poignant, frankly. And as a feminist, it's not something that I could do. So I was the one bringing Judaism to our family, to my children, and I wasn't re really willing to just put it aside even though my children have three out of their four grandparents are Episcopalian. So that might have been the logical choice in my family. But I wanted them to have both. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller about her book on being both, embracing two religions in one interfaith family. So we've begun to touch on this, but I'd like to just take a moment and linger there. When we say the word interfaith family, we're not actually talking about one type of family. Could you give us sort of what the spectrum of, of interfaith families are in your experience? Sure. Well, there are many pathways that you can take. I mean, some families choose one, some choose the other religion, some choose both, many choose none, and some move to a more universal position where they're sort of studying all religions. And some actually choose a third religion, um, a new choice, rather than going with one or the other. So if I'm hearing you correctly, some will abandon the tradition on both sides and choose a wholly new tradition? Yes. Uh, I tell the story in the book of a family where the man was Catholic, the woman was Jewish. They searched together for a religious practice that would work for them. This was in the 60s. And they ended up becoming Sufi Muslims and raised their children in that tradition. 
part of what I write about is the idea that no matter which of those pathways you choose, there are going to be benefits of that pathway, and there are going to be drawbacks. So for me, being raised with one religion had those benefits in terms of the depth of my connection to Judaism, but there also were those drawbacks, um, one being that sort of poignant feeling about my mother having sacrificed, and another being that I've had to defend my Jewish identity throughout my lifetime. That is part of being an interfaith child. No matter which pathway your parents choose for you, you are probably going to have to go out and defend your identity and explain it to people. So there is a cognitive dissonance where my parents gave me this label of Jewish, but when I grew up and went out into the world, there were a lot of people telling me that I wasn't Jewish because I was from an interfaith family, because it's my father and not my mother who's Jewish. And so I think on some level for my own children, I did not want them to have to go out and have to defend themselves all the time as Jewish when they have one Jewish grandparent, they were going to receive a lot of challenges. And so I think at that point I said, for our family, I want them to be literate in both religions. I want them to understand the references in culture, in politics, um, to both religions because they have a right to that knowledge. This is the way I feel personally that as an interfaith child, because you have to defend yourself to the world, you need to arm those children with as much knowledge as you can with a, a deep education in all of their ancestry so that they understand, for instance, my children have a great-great-grandfather who was an itinerant rabbi on the Mississippi River. I want them to understand what that means. They also have a great-great-grandfather who was an Episcopal bishop of Newark. And I don't want them to be ignorant about that. I want them to understand what that means. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and journalist Susan Katzmiller about her recent book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. You're listening to Things Not Seen. Now, you mentioned in your own personal experience that you had to defend your your Jewish identity against those that would question that. So when when you were coming out of that family experience, a choice had been made for you. Your parents decided, our daughter and our other children, they will be raised Jewish. And you had challenges to that from outsiders within the broader tradition who would say, but no, you're not really Jewish. And so you learned for yourself how to articulate uh, an identity that was secure, but that also sort of, as you said, was kind of an ambassador identity that, that, that bridged these, these gaps. So when you were making decisions about starting a family with, with your husband, did you draw upon that experience and look to the future? And did you encounter some pitfalls and hardships that maybe you hadn't anticipated from your own experience in making the kind of decisions about the family arrangements that you made? Um, I think one of the reasons my husband and I made this relatively new and more unusual choice to raise them with both had to do with our experiences out in the world. You mentioned in the introduction that we had lived in both Senegal and Brazil, and both of those experiences fed into our decision. Um, in Senegal, we, as a young couple without children, celebrated Jewish holidays and Christian holidays, but also uh, Muslim holidays with our Senegalese friends and neighbors. So already I went from sort of a little New England town where everybody was pretty much Protestant with a few Catholics and we were the only, I think, half-Jewish family, um, out into a world where I was, my mind broadened out beyond this binary of Christian or Jewish into, oh, there's also Islam, there are also these um, traditional African religions in play. And then we moved to northeastern Brazil, which, as you probably know, is the largest Catholic country in the world, but where a lot of people simultaneously practice Yoruba-based West African traditions along with Catholicism. So there was also an interesting influence in terms of my thinking that, well, people do sometimes draw from more than one religion in their lives. And so I was primed in a way to make this choice, I think. And by the time we came back to the United States, 
we actually found a small intentional interfaith families community already in existence where we were living in Washington, D.C. And so I dove right into this. I was the first interfaith child to be a parent in that group. So I'm on the cutting edge of what is actually a very large boom coming up of people of Jewish background being primarily of mixed ancestry in the the demographic below a certain age now. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller about her book On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. We're going to take a short break. Stay with us. We'll be back in just a moment. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today with Susan Katz-Miller, author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So you've begun to touch on this, and I, I kind of want to dig deeper. What is the politics of an interfaith family uh, with with these various communities that you that you claim? And you, you've begun to touch on it that some would say, well, because you don't have a mother who's Jewish or, or your father, or depending on the, the relationship, some people will claim you're not actually part of a legitimate tradition. But sort of what has been your experience of the of the political reality of an interfaith family? Well, I would say you have to be strong in your own beliefs and your own identity and be willing to defend yourself in the world. And this is a drawback, but of course there's a silver lining, which is that it builds your character. It forces you to be articulate about who you are and to think deeply about who you are so that you can explain that to the world. One of the things we teach children, interfaith children being raised with both, is that you are an interfaith ambassador. You are going to have to go out and explain yourself to the world, and therefore you're going to be explaining both of your ancestral religions to the world. So often interfaith children will find themselves in a position where they're explaining Judaism to their Christian friends, and then they'll be explaining Christianity to their Jewish friends. And it's almost like you are born into this state of being a teacher and an ambassador. So if we were to imagine a continuum, a a line, on one side might be what we would call essentialism, the idea that every religion and every culture has its distinct irreducible character, its core, On the other side of that line might be the notion of syncretism, the idea that cultures and religious practices are fluid and that the reality is is that they are always shifting and blending. So if we have these two concepts in tension, syncretism, essentialism, along this continuum, where would you place your experience with your family along that line? So I think syncretism has a negative connotation in a lot of theological systems and for a lot of religious institutions. But once I really came into my own seeing the world through my interfaith child lens, I began tuning into the idea that all religions are syncretic and always have been. They continue to change. Um, And often there are claims to the contrary, like, you know, this is ancient. We've always done it this way. And that's almost never the case. If you go back in history, if you look at what actually happened, there are influences coming in from outside of whatever your little religious bubble is. And those membranes are porous. I very much see it that way. And what does that mean in terms of practice in an interfaith family trying to do both or doing both? We do try to go as deeply as we can into both religions in teaching children both. And we talk about the common ground, but we also talk about the important differences and why they're different. And then we talk about the points of historical contact between the two religions. And that is something that you don't often get in a single faith religious education. So, but we see those points of contact as very important. And especially for an interfaith child to know that these aren't two completely discrete parts of them that don't connect. They do connect. Historically, the religions have connected. Historically, there has always been intermarriage um, between two groups that lived side by side. Um, You know, my father is 
100% Jewish. He has very pale skin and red hair. And, you know, people know about Jewish redheads. That did not come from the Middle East. So where did it come from? There's always been, those those membranes have always been porous. So if if I were to ask your children about their identification, it sounds like they would say that they have two well-formed, distinct, but overlapping religious identities, not a blended religious identity. Have I heard that correctly? That's right. I, you know, I tend to not use these words, blended, fused, mixed. I try to communicate the idea that we really do respect the fact that these are separate and that they have these deep histories and texts that are discrete and that we honor and that we're not trying to throw out. We're not trying to create a third religion. We're trying to go as deeply as we can into the two religions in the family. Is there ever an advantage that is given or is there ever a positive side to that kind of essentialism or is it always just a misplaced self-identity? What I would say is it's important to me that Judaism, the system, survive and continue. And I'm deeply honoring all of that history while simultaneously deeply honoring all of the Christian history in my children's lives. And I don't want it all to mush together. I I don't want us all to become the same. Part of what we do in these interfaith family communities is to communicate to the children the idea that they are not a problem. And what I'm trying to say in the book is that no matter which religious education you choose for your child, no matter which religious label you give them, it's essential to give them a positive sense about their interfaithness. And I don't think any choice you make can completely erase that interfaithness. So my experience growing up was, you can have one religion chosen for you, but there's a level as an interfaith child when you're always going to know that you are an interfaith child, even if you're a Jewish interfaith child or a Catholic interfaith child, because you have grandparents and cousins, and those are formative. You go to your cousin's first communion. You know, you go to your cousin's bar mitzvah, and even if that's not your religion, You have deep love for these people, and it's going to have an influence on you, which I think is a positive influence. Because the problem is often a religious institution that's pushing families to choose one, they're trying to sort of erase the influence of the rest of the family. I, I don't think it's a good strategy, and I don't think it actually benefits the religion in question um, to sort of try to draw those lines and say, don't go beyond them. So you described your mother and that when she left Episcopalianism and joined with your father in a Jewish household, she she did that without irony. She went into a Jewish identity and embraced it, including learning Hebrew and all that, which means that your experience of Christianity didn't come from that blended relationship, if I've heard you correctly. So what was it like for you uh, in the conscious choice with your family to have both traditions, Christianity and Judaism, honored? What was that experience like? Well, first I'm going to point out that my mother never converted, and that's important. So she didn't leave Episcopalianism. She put it aside, and that's the way I I would put it. And for me, that's also, there's that poignant idea that she was holding on to her own identity on some deep level, even though she was completely holding to her agreement to raise Jewish children and doing her best, doing her all to make that happen. Um, But privately, there was a level where she kept her identity. So, But yes, for me, growing up um, with a thorough Reformed Jewish education, Um, I really knew nothing about Christianity. In a lot of Jewish families, it's not something that's discussed. It's a little bit scary, a little bit, um, you know, the history is very fraught between the two religions. There's a lot of very horrible things that happened. They're real. Um, But for my children, I really felt I wanted them to understand the history, good and bad. 
Now, for me, as an adult who was given only a Jewish education, I had to educate myself. And there's a process, and we see this with the interfaith families that join our interfaith family community, that for the Jewish partners, often at first you can't even say the name Jesus because you were raised not to say that word. Um, and it's really, there's there's so much um, power and electricity, and it's something that you just don't do. So we work with parents to get comfortable discussing all of Christianity, discussing all of Judaism, so that they can do that comfortably with their own children and help to educate their children. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katzmiller about her book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. So what does this look like in practice? So when your family is worshiping, what does that entail in terms of sort of concrete times and places? So a year ago, Pew Research came out with their study of the Jewish American landscape. And the statistic in there that popped out for me is that 25% of intermarried Jewish parents are raising children partly Jewish and partly something else. So these are my people. These are the the families doing both. And that's, they estimated something like 300,000 children being raised this way. Now, most of them living around the country are not doing it in an intentional interfaith family community. But there are three vibrant programs where this is happening, each of them with over 100 interfaith children getting an interfaith education in a religious education program together. So Washington, New York, and Chicago each have these vibrant programs for interfaith families to do this together. I think having community is really important for every child. Historically, a lot of interfaith families have gravitated to Unitarian Universalism. And that's a choice that's fairly widely available in many communities. And when you go to a UU community, you are going to find a lot of interfaith families who found a comfortable home there. So that's a good choice. Um, I think the choice my parents made was an excellent choice. There are great benefits to choosing one. And there are more and more synagogues and churches that are very welcoming and inclusive of interfaith families and that's good. I want all of those choices out there. When my children grow up, I want them to have all these choices available. If they choose to affiliate and join a Jewish community, I want those open and inclusive communities to be out there for them. And I want churches out there for them that will understand something about their journey as interfaith children and will benefit from having the richness of their experience in that church community. Um, But in these three cities, these intentional interfaith communities, what we're doing is usually a lot of these families will belong to a church, belong to a synagogue. And so their places of worship will be in those places. And the interfaith education is a support community and an educational community. It's not a religion. So they're being given a place to not only learn both, but to try to integrate um, and ask questions that might not be comfortable in that Jewish Sunday school or that Christian Sunday school about who they are and how this all works in their family. Each of these three programs shares a philosophy in which you have a Jewish teacher and a Christian teacher in every classroom. And that's essential because those two teachers are modeling interfaith communication and dialogue and bridging, and they're there to give answers from those two traditions and to help the children figure out how it all fits together for each of them individually, which is going to vary. Each child is going to decide again and again throughout their lifetimes how they want to draw on those two traditions. Now, is is this sort of model that you said is in these major metropolitan areas like New York and Washington and Chicago, is it spreading or is it mainly just going to be anchored in those three cities? There are smaller groups that have spun off and, and um, popped up organically in different cities over time. Um, there are small groups right now in Boston, in Philadelphia, um, Connecticut. Um, 
Others sometimes arise with a group of families that together will raise their children in a sort of a, a one-room schoolhouse, share resources, do holidays together, and then when the children age out, it sort of disappears, so they don't institutionalize. Um, I think it's an idea that keeps recurring. Even if people don't know that there are communities out there doing this, they'll come to this decision for themselves. We we want to teach our children both. Why can't we do this? You have to have a certain amount of chutzpah, um, of grit, of determination, because you are going to have religious institutions and clergy and probably extended family telling you, oh, no, don't do that. You know, you'll confuse your children. Um, but a lot of my book is devoted to documenting how these children raised in intentional interfaith families uh, with this fairly robust education system come out feeling about themselves and about their identities and about the world. Now, is this sort of interfaith family arrangement made easier by the fact that both religious identities in question are Abrahamic? So, in other words, Christians and Jews, you mentioned in the classroom together, and we could we could extend that and say Christians, Muslims, and Jews, they all share a, sort of a, a basic set of characters and narratives in their in their key texts. Now, would this same kind of arrangement be more problematic if the blend was, say, between an Abrahamic and a non-Abrahamic, for example, a Hindu-Jewish family instead of a Jewish-Protestant Christian family? Well, first, I wouldn't call it a blend. Okay, sorry, <laughs> yes. Um, but also, you know, I write about the idea that whatever, whichever two religions we're talking about, there are going to be synergies and benefits of those two, and there are going to be specific challenges for those two. And the fact that Judaism and Christianity is so close makes some parts of doing this easier, and it makes some parts of doing this harder. Because they've had this tension between them since the beginning, that creates a friction because they really have identified themselves in opposition to each other. And so you have to overcome that history of that oppositional um, formation. Whereas, for instance, Hinduism and Christianity really have had less interaction, and so there isn't that fraught history. And so that's a benefit. Um, I do have a chapter in the book where I tell the stories of Hindu, Muslim, Buddhist, other types of interfaith families all raising their children with both. I asked earlier about the politics of interfaith family relationships and arrangements. So let me now ask that question in a slightly different way. Is making an intentional interfaith relationship or family, is that a political act? And by that I mean, do you see this choice of making a, an intentional interfaith family a way of making a contribution that will affect positive change in the world? And what would that change look like? I do, absolutely. Many interfaith families are not thinking along these lines. When they make this choice, they're not making a political choice. They're making a choice that feels like the only choice that works for them, for whatever reasons. Um, but when you get all these families together and you start raising the children this way and you look at how those children turn out, as I do in my book, um, I see patterns one of the tendencies that I've noticed is for children who are raised with two religions to go on and go out into the world and want to study other religions, more religions. They are religiously curious in an intellectual way that I think comes from being given both systems from the beginning and having that sort of compare and contrast and that awareness. And I think that people who have religious literacy, interfaith literacy in two or more systems are going to be people who build bridges and ultimately people who help to reduce religious intolerance and religious violence. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katzmiller about her book On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Please join us for more of our conversation with Susan Katzmiller after this short break. We'll be back in a moment.
This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. We're speaking today to journalist and author Susan Katz-Miller about her book on being both, embracing two religions in one interfaith family. So how has this experience of being in an interfaith family and then choosing to raise your children in an intentional interfaith arrangement, how has that changed your views of Judaism and Christianity particularly? Well, for me, I'm much more comfortable with Christianity. I would also say that I still identify myself as a Jew, and that's very important to me, especially if I encounter anti-Semitism or if I feel called on to you know, be part of that. I, I stand up. And I wanted my children to also feel that. My children know that I expect them to do the same. So no matter what choices they make, no matter what affiliations they have in adulthood, they know that if they encounter anti-Semitism, if they hear people making comments, they're going to stand up and say, hey, I'm Jewish, that's not cool. For me, though, also, it's interesting because I went from in childhood having this singular Jewish identity to in adulthood very much claiming my identity as an interfaith child. And part of what I write about is the idea that interfaith children have the right to identify themselves differently at different times, in different contexts, and that other people's expectation that we be consistent and singular is not something that I'm willing to now give into. So if I'm in a very Jewish context, I might then identify myself as, hey, I'm an interfaith child, and this is how I see this. So often I'll identify myself sort of in contrast to the context in which I'm functioning. Because I am doing that bridge-building work, I am doing that ambassadorial work all the time. What advice would you give to families that maybe are, are starting out into a marriage and are thinking about raising children? What would you say to them about what they're in for and, and sort of what they should be doing to prepare? <laughs> well, again, community is important. Find community. Education is important. Give your children religious literacy in however many religions you choose to do that. Um, if you want to give them a broad, multi-religious education, you know, Unitarian Universalism will help you to do that. Um, it's such an individual choice, or not individual, but it's the family unit. You know, it's the it's the parents that make that choice together, but. Um, try to really listen to yourselves and listen to each other and not necessarily to all of the voices of the people around you, whether it's your mother-in-law or, you know, the the house of worship down the street that would like to have you because they need members. You, you really have to listen to each other and to yourself. But also, these choices can change and will change. So the idea that you are going to promise at point A in your life's journey that this is how you are going to be for the rest of your life and this is how you're going to raise your children for the rest of your life, that's simply not realistic. And Pew Research has shown this tremendously high rate of fluidity and flexibility in religious identification in America with people leaving a, a religion, changing religions, double affiliating, and that's not just among people from interfaith families, that's all Americans. So this is the kaleidoscope we live in. And try to be comfortable with it, and, and it's not necessarily a scary or a negative thing. This is what I am trying to do. You know, growing up, as I came of age, I've been interested in this topic all of my life as somebody who was born into an interfaith family. So when people ask me, how long have you been working on the book, I'll say, all my life. Um, but when I started reading literature, it was so negative. It always presented interfaith marriage as a dilemma and raising interfaith children as so deeply problematic. And that was not my experience. Growing up, I lived in a very happy interfaith family. And my parents are now 90 and 84, and they have one of the strongest marriages I know. And so I think that did color, perhaps through rose-colored glasses, you know, everything that I went on to feel and believe and ultimately write about. And some people do think that I am, you know, too optimistic or that my book, you know, 
presents more of the good than the bad. If that's the case, I feel that it is balancing a lot of the literature that had been written previously that was so negative. So, you know, but I do talk about challenges. And again, every pathway has challenges. For an interfaith family choosing both, there are two main challenges. One is you're going to have to go out and explain this to everybody you meet because it's not as common. People aren't used to the idea of raising kids with more than one. And so you're going to have to defend that. So you're going to have to have a certain amount of, you know, backbone to choose this path. It's harder in that sense. It's easier to choose one. If it works for you to choose one, then please do choose one because that is going to be easier. This is harder, but it also has these very specific benefits. And for me, it's been an exhilarating and tremendously gratifying, tremendously educational um, pathway. And my husband and I have very much enjoyed doing it together, being on this journey together. He taught in our interfaith Sunday school for a while. Um, I've been on the board. We're still very active, even though our children have actually aged out of the program. One's gone off to college, but we're still there with this community. Our community in Washington, D.C. has both a rabbi and a minister on staff. So we feel we have a lot of pastoral counseling, a lot of support. There are some brave clergy who are beginning to affiliate with these organizations and support these families. They're beginning to see that there are benefits as well as drawbacks to doing both. If you're just joining us, we're speaking today with author and journalist Susan Katz-Miller about her recent book, On Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. You're listening to Things Not Seen. So you've, you've talked about the challenges that you've faced, and after a lifetime of experience with this, what continues to give you hope? I feel a tremendous sense of hope when I talk with the children who've been raised with both, when it's done deeply and well. There's a whole chapter in my book of profiles of these young adults. Many of them were in college when I was interviewing them. And they are so articulate. They are so positive. They don't sound confused. And actually, in my survey of 50 young adults, I asked them, are you confused? And 90% said no. So they kind of, for me, put to rest that, you know, ancient worry that this is confusing. Um, They're able to articulate who they are, what they find positive about their background, The majority of them want to give their own children an interfaith education, which is interesting because if they go out and grow up and move to Nebraska and Georgia and Iowa, they're probably going to have to start interfaith education programs for their own children if they really want to do this. Um, You know, it's interesting. People worry that interfaith children will be torn between their parents, that they'll feel that they're choosing one parent over the other. And that's something else that I looked at in the survey and that I feel really, that I feel that these young adults spoke to that and put that worry to rest. Most of them talk about making a choice someday, perhaps in conjunction with their own spouse. So You know, some of them said, if I marry a Catholic, I'm going to be Catholic. Some of them said, if I marry a Catholic, I'm going to want to be the Jewish one because I want to replicate this rich and spiritually fulfilling interfaith family, interfaith education that I had. And so I want to maintain that balance going forward, which is not something that I expected to find. So it was interesting. Well, Susan Katz-Miller, I've very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. Our guest today has been Susan Katz-Miller. She's the author of Being Both, Embracing Two Religions in One Interfaith Family. Miller began her career as a journalist at Newsweek, working out of their New York, Los Angeles, and Washington bureaus. From there, she moved to Senegal, where she wrote for the New York Times and the Christian Science Monitor. She's worked as the U.S. correspondent for the British weekly magazine New Scientist and spent three years freelancing from northeastern Brazil. After her two children were born, she and her husband settled in the Washington, D.C. area, and she founded a blog devoted to interfaith family communities and interfaith identity called OnBeingBoth.com, and she began blogging at Huffington Post Religion.
If you're listening to Things Not Seen for the first time and you like what you hear, you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Search for Things Not Seen Podcast in the iTunes Store. And while you're there, we'd love it if you took a moment to write a review and give us a rating. That's actually unbelievably helpful in getting the word out about the show. And as always, we thank you for listening. If you're on Twitter, take a moment and follow us at Not Seen Radio. If you want to keep up with me and the silly things that I tweet about, you can do that by following at Dalt Radio. We're also on Facebook. You can find us there at facebook.com slash thingsnotseenradio. And one more plug. If you haven't discovered our daily Religion Moments podcast yet, you're truly missing out on a treasure. Each and every day, our senior producer, Katie Scroggin, finds some highlight from religious history and turns it into this incredible, informative little two-minute gem. Seriously, they're brilliant, they're free, and they happen every day. You should be listening. And even better, we have all of them archived on our website. So if you're just now starting to listen to Religion Moments, you've not missed out on a thing. You can go back and explore the whole catalog just like you were traveling back in time. So it's not even Thanksgiving yet, and already the Christmas decorations have started to go up. It's there in the malls. It's there as you're walking down the street. Uh, I live in Chicago, and right here in Daly Plaza, they're building an entire village, which I imagine they're going to populate with little elves. Uh, just the entire plaza full of buildings uh, that will be soon sort of selling trinkets and uh, and giving you mulled wine and those sorts of things. But one of the aspects of the Christmas season that is true whether you live in Chicago or Boise or anywhere in the United States is the prevalence of the bell ringers, the Salvation Army folks that come and stand outside of stores and ask for a donation. I've never thought too much about who they are or where they come from, but Natasha Alford did, and she gives us this report. Major Colleen Mashad makes it clear that she is part of an army, God's army, that is. People in different styles. Some people don't like the bells. Anyway. Major Colleen has been with the Salvation Army for more than 40 years and for the past two years has run its holiday donation bucket drive, also known informally as the Bell Ringer Program. Most people see bell ringers as a sign of the holiday season or a sign that they should head in the opposite direction. But Major Colleen says the bell ringer program is actually in many ways more about the ringers themselves than the money you drop in. We met to discuss. These bell ringers are men and women who the Salvation Army give an opportunity at this time of the year to work. These are people with felonies. The only category we do not employ is sex offenders. Everybody else, some got four or five. We don't do, we used to do checks and then we stop. Because during the year, nobody will employ these people. We employ them at Christmas time. While some workers have criminal backgrounds, many are just homeless or down on their luck financially. The Bell Ringer program gives them an opportunity to work at a time when they most need financial stability. The pay is $8.25 an hour, and bell ringers must bring in $70 worth of donations minimum to keep their jobs. Mashad oversees an average of 300 workers who sign up on a first-come, first-served basis to ring bells and manage Salvation Army donation buckets outside of commercial establishments. Meanwhile, on the streets of Evanston, Daryl Blackwell is working his bell and his charm outside of Sam's Club. Customers come and go, many with full carts, but no time to drop a dollar or two in the bucket. Blackwell has a strategy, though. I like to stop more right here. Where they can see me, they come Blackwell has been a ringer for the past three years. He says with changes in the economy, he's also seen changes in giving. They're tight. <laughs> no one I sent them a check, blah, blah. Some people just too cold to go in their pocket, I think. Once they come out with their mittens on, they don't to take them off and go back. Nevertheless, he continues ringing the bell with a smile. The snow begins to fall at a harder rate, and people rush to get to their car. Help those in need. 
A man stops to drop a dollar in the bucket. All right, I'm here. Take care now. Happy holiday. It's one dollar closer to his daily goal, which hopefully translates to one less day in the cold. Back in the office, Major Colleen talks about the darker side to the intersection of poverty and bell ringing. When they receive the money, they, they, actually they should not receive the money in their hands. They're to have the consumer put the money in the bucket. Major Colleen brings out a box. This is, this is my evidence here. In it are ripped dollar bills. Once we find that in your bucket, your services are terminated. But the majority of bell ringers do an honest day's work, and to reward and incentivize them, Major Colleen serves breakfast daily and provides snacks. She says the job is hard, but the reality of living on the streets is even harder. For many bell ringers, this will be their only employment for months. And for the Salvation Army, this money thumbs the bread and butter of their work. Okay, and then that money will be used towards social services. Right, social services mean we pay rent. Yeah. We pay utilities. We buy, do school uniforms. Listen, let me tell you, we do throughout the year. Need has no season. As Daryl Blackwell wraps up a long shift in the cold, a breakthrough comes from a woman who pauses her grocery cart to make a donation. For the bell ringers, every little bit can make the difference. Natasha S. Alford is a multimedia journalist with a background in education. A former middle school English teacher and education advocate, Alford graduated from Harvard University in 2008 with a degree in social studies. She has a Master of Science degree in video broadcast from Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism and works as a reporter in Rochester, New York. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC, with the support of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ's Navy Pier Studios, overlooking beautiful Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club, here in the Chicago Loop, and in Rochester, New York. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja. Mary Gaffney engineered the show. Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenock. Katie Scroggin is our senior producer. You can follow us on Twitter at Not Seen Radio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash things not seen radio. And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and hear extra audio from our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalt, and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.